The following is a presentation of United Filmways Media, the future of talk. Your attention please. This is an important announcement. Please do not be alarmed, remain calm. Don't you see, Tip? Here in this laboratory is the necessary material for a monster. Over there in that glass tank is something that's alive only because millions of people believe it's alive. The pod pretenders are on the air. Good lord, this weather sucks. hour coming up on the pod pretenders we're gonna bring you some stories that'll chill you to the bone or at least keep you entertained for a little while so grab a seat grab a blanket turn down the lights and be ready to hear some of the most terrifying stories we could find on the internet it's astounding time is fleeting madness takes its toll but listen closely. Not for very much longer. I've got to keep control. first story brought to us by S.E. Slosser, the Lady in the Veil. He had not expected to meet the woman of his dreams, but there she was strolling along in the moonlight beside the cemetery. Carlos quickened his pace until he was level with her, hoping for a glimpse of her face under the veil. Carlos made a few remarks about the beautiful night and the lovely weather, anything to keep her talking. She stopped abruptly and turned to face him. He caught a glimpse of dark eyes glinting behind the veil. What is it you want? she asked. A date, senorita. Just a date, Carlos beamed. She paused and said, I don't know. Ask me again in this place at this time tomorrow night and we shall see. Carlos's heart leapt in his chest, so she was playing hard to get. Well, fair enough. He would see her tomorrow and then she would fall into his arms. The next day dragged for the infatuated Carlos and he had trouble concentrating on his work. But at last, he was free and running the few blocks to his home to change into suitable attire. He could barely contain himself, and he reached the cemetery a few minutes early. She was not there yet, so Carlos entertained himself by picturing his beautiful bride in their new home. Suddenly, there she was in front of him. The moonlight sparkled off her veil. Carlos was enchanted. They talked for hours, standing in front of the graveyard, she was as witty as she was beautiful, and Carlos begged her for a date. We will go out tomorrow night, she said. I will send you a letter with the place and time. Carlos kissed her hand and floated away, 
so happy he just wanted to sing for joy. Carlos was absolutely useless at work the next day. After work, he rushed home and found a letter in his mailbox. Eagerly, he read it, not pausing to wonder how she knew where he lived. Then, he ran next door to show it to Diego, his closest cousin. Diego went pale when he read her signature. Rosa Gonzalez. This must be the same Rosa that died in a car crash last year. Diego tried to warn Carlos, but Carlos was already in love. That night, as Carlos hurried to the cemetery, Diego followed, certain that his cousin was in over his head. Carlos bound over to Rosa. At last we go out, he cried to her. But first, my love, show me your face. At his words, Rosa pulled aside the veil, while back at the gate, Diego gave a gasp of shock, for she had the desiccated face of a skeleton. He was frozen to the spot by the power of the evil specter, unable to warn Carlos. Looking down, Carlos only saw the glamour the ghost was projecting. As the skeleton's withered arms trapped him, the veil on his eyes was lifted and he realized in one heart-stopping moment the abomination he was kissing. The ground opened up, and with a laugh of triumph, the specter pulled him down and down into her tomb. The earth closed over Carlos and Rosa. Diego, freed from the ghost's spell, ran into the cemetery, shouting his cousin's name in terror. But it was too late. Carlos was dead and locked for all time in Rosa's arms. <laughs> I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began to rise. And suddenly, to my surprise, he did the mash. He did the monster mash. Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous I had been, and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The diseases sharpened my senses. Not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all, was the sense of hearing was acute. I heard all things in the heavens and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How, then, am I mad? Hearken, and observe now, healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of this old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now at this point, you fancy me mad. Mad men know nothing, but you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceed. With what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it. Oh, so gently. And then, when I made an opening sufficient enough for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. 
Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman be so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously. Cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And I did this for seven long nights. Every night, just at midnight. But then I found the eye always closed. And so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when day broke, I went boldly into chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moved more quickly than did mine. Never before that night have I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph to think that I was opening the door little by little, and he not even dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were closed and fastened through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing on it, steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle and in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently, I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was a groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of relief. Oh, no. It was a low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew that sound well. Many a night... Just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo. The terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in his bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had not tried to fancy them causeless. He could not. He had been saying to himself, it is nothing but the wind or the chimney, it is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim, and it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily until, 
and like the simple dim ray like the thread of a spider shot from the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones, but I could see nothing of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound such as a watch makes when it's enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eve. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew louder and quicker, and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder. I say louder every moment. Do you mark me well I have told you that I am nervous? So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes, longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder and louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, only once, and in an instant I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone. Stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart, held it there for many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I have been too wary for that. The tub had caught all. <laughs> when I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night, suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police officer and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentleman welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues. 
while I, myself, and the wild audacity of my perfect triumphs placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered them cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained deafness, until at length I found the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound. Much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles, in a high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and it grated upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continuously increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the man chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no. No, they heard, they suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This, I thought, as this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. why we are the pod pretenders my friends this episode of the pod pretenders has been a presentation of united filmways media the future of talk